Now here Paul is writing to the saints that are at Philippi, the brethren, verse 1, together with the elders and the deacons, verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He begins this letter to the believers at Philippi, writing it, as you know, from a prison in Rome, where apparently he was even chained. He refers to his bonds in this letter. And he is praying in this prison. He is praying for the Reformation, for the continued sanctification, which is uh, a gradual reformation, is it not, of the believers in Philippi. And he says in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine. In every prayer of mine. The man is praying in jail. He is thanking God in his prayers in jail. And every time he prays in jail, he is thinking of the Philippians and thanking God for them and considering how the Reformation is proceeding and progressing at Philippi, which started with his own establishment of the Christian church there some years previously. And he says in verse 6, I am confident, I am confident of this very thing, as I pray for you, that he which hath begun the work in you will perform it, that is, will keep on performing it, reforming it, until the day of Jesus Christ. He was confident that God would promote the Reformation. Today we live in a time when we lack confidence. I don't know why it is. We're not in jail. We don't have chains on us like Paul did. And we lack confidence, many of us, in the power of Christianity to expand and to change the face of this earth. But I want us to see that Paul was confident. Confident though himself in jail. Confident though himself in chains. That the gospel of Jesus Christ which he himself had established in the hearts of the believers in Philippi for whom he prayed in every prayer that he prayed, he was confident that God would keep them standing by his almighty power even in the absence of Paul. 
and that God would keep on performing and reforming them right down to the day of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Second, shall we turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. Or perhaps we can uh, start in verse 12. He's just been pointing out in verse 11 that the Ephesian Christians, those at Ephesus, have been established in the Christian faith according to the eternal purpose which God purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he goes on to say, in Christ Jesus our Lord, we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him, by the Christian faith. We have confidence and we have boldness that you who are elect according to his eternal counsel will continue to be built up in the Christian faith. And when Paul thinks of the wonderful life of development which lies ahead for the believers, the Christians of Ephesus in this life here and now, in the subsequent verses he breaks out in doxological adoration, in a mighty prayer for the continued reformation of God's children. And he says in verse 14, For this cause, for this reason, this is why, because I know that you are elect, because I know that I am confident that you will be built up in the Christian faith. I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I get down on my knees in reformational prayer before the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Here he refers to the entire uh, human race in heaven, in glory, and upon earth as a family. In this I think we can see that as far as Paul is concerned, the fulfillment of history in the centuries that lie ahead of him between the time he's praying this and the second coming of the Lord, the purpose of the fulfillment of that future history involves the coalition, the bringing together, the unification of the whole family in heaven and in earth. That is the meaning of history. And he prays in verse 16, that God would grant you, you, Paul, I am praying for y'all that the Holy Spirit will make you strong, that he will build you up, that he will enrich you in a glorious way so that Christ, verse 17, may keep on dwelling in your hearts by faith, and that you having been rooted and grounded in love, you 
having been regenerated once and for all, will be able, verse 18, to go uncomprehending with all of the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge so that you might be filled might keep on being filled with all of the fullness of God then he ends this mighty prayer now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages world without end Amen he prays that we may keep on being filled with all the fullness of God verse 19 now I don't want to get deviated tonight from the subject of prayer to the other important subject of the necessity of keeping on being filled with the Holy Spirit but I do desire to say just this about that and that is it is my understanding of Scripture that every Christian the very moment that he is regenerated by the Holy Ghost is filled with the Holy Spirit right then. But, that when we fool around in a life of sin, a life of prayerlessness, a life of commandment breaking, while not losing the earnest and the down payment of the Holy Spirit, we do lose the joy of the Holy Spirit. We do lose the fullness of the Holy Spirit and we only get that fullness back in our life after turning in a new conversion in a new repentance away from specific sins that are blocking out the joy of the Lord in our life in being reconverted as God's born again children to the fullness of the fellowship of the Lord and to request him to again fill us with his Holy Spirit. The secret of the Christian life, it seems to me, does not lie in us denying that we receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit at the time of our regeneration, but seeking the fullness of the Holy Spirit as some kind of a once and for all second blessing after that, or seeking a dramatic spiritual experience often of a glottalalic nature tongue-speaking nature subsequent to our regeneration it seems to me from scripture that we need to see that the normal natural joyful powerful condition of every Christian be he a baby, be he a child, be he an adolescent, be he an adult, or be he an old person, the normal, natural, healthful, powerful condition of every uh, Christian is to be full of the Holy Spirit, 
to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit, not so much as something that happens each week or every time there's a yearly revival, but for us to request the Lord every day to keep on filling us with His Spirit. In fact, to request Him subconsciously every second to pray always in the Spirit so that we keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. It seems to me that this is what Paul is referring to in Ephesians chapter 5 where he is addressing Christians who have previously had a problem of the abuse of alcoholic beverages. And he says to them in the Greek, Now please don't keep on being full of wine. Please do not keep on being filled with wine. Uh, Twenty glasses a day. But do keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Twenty glasses a day. And the way in which you keep on being filled with the Spirit is not in asking God for some kind of mystical, ecstatic, linguistic utterance, but by keep on singing to the Lord with psalms and with hymns and with spiritual songs. Now let me put in a plug for psalm singing. If you are not the kind of person that keeps on singing the psalms, if you're not constantly keeping on singing the psalms, then you are not constantly keeping on being filled with the Holy Spirit. You may be on some kind of a spiritual binge of a dramatic or a traumatic or a drunken-looking nature, but you are not keeping on being filled with the Spirit. To keep on being filled with the Spirit of God, according to Paul, means to keep on singing the Psalms daily and many times each day. And if you want to know why, so many churches and even Presbyterian churches, least guilty of all, but nevertheless guilty, are so depleted of the power of the Holy Ghost it's because they don't want to sing the psalms regularly, daily. You see, the psalms is the one kind of psalm that was written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And if you want the Holy Spirit, you've got to drink deeply of the well in which the Holy Spirit has deposited himself and that well, beloved, is the book of Psalms. All 150 of them slap bang in the middle of the Bible. Well, now I said I didn't want to digress too much into this subject, so now, after that digression, let's get back to the subject of Reformation and prayer. We're at Ephesians chapter 3, and we were just taking a look at verse 19, and that's what caused the digression where Paul says to the Ephesians, Oh, that you would know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, so that you might keep on being filled with all of the fullness of joy. And then Paul really takes a deep breath in his lungs and ends this mighty prayer for the Reformation, for the Confirmation, 
for the consummation of God's people with these powerful words, now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. He says we cannot ask too much of God. We cannot think too much that we want from God as long as it's in the interest of the promotion of his kingdom. We're not asking great enough things of God. We're not doing powerful enough things to God. You can never ask too much of God that he would give you things so that you can expand his kingdom. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. How? According to the power that worketh in us. What power is that? The power of the indwelling constantly re-infilling, re-converting, sanctifying Spirit of God. Unto Him be glory in the church. By Christ Jesus, and now He looks on down through all of the millenniums and the millenniums and the millenniums between the time of His prayer and the second coming of Jesus after the conversion of the world when the length of the breadth and the height and the depth of Christ will have been fully displayed. He says, throughout all ages, though any minute imminent rapture here, folks, throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Now, that's the introduction. Let's start, in conclusion, the sermon from the book of Romans. The book of Romans, chapter 1. The book of Romans, chapter 1, and verse 16. Where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Oh, that we could say today with Paul, we are not ashamed of the gospel, that we love to speak of the gospel, that we delight in confronting men and women with the gospel. I had a good time this afternoon in buying a couple of suits, in confronting the Mormon clothier with the gospel. Some people were looking at me like I was a nut, and I won't mention any names. But I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in buying a suit from a Mormon, because this gospel is the power of God. Not my power, the power of God. Now, what does it do? It's the power of God unto salvation. That doesn't just mean to lead a person to Christ and to cram a tract in his pocket and to leave him there. Salvation means, it includes that, salvation means a state of full and complete health and benefit. Salvation means that you've only existed until you fully put your trust and keep on trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus then the gospel of Christ is not only a pleasant feeling deep down in your heart, 
It's like fire in your bones. It's like sanity in your brain. It's like power in your body. It's like something to live for in the future. The gospel, beloved, is the power of God. You've got it in your life. You've got the gospel, which is the power of God. I'm not ashamed of it. And I hope you'll never be ashamed of it. Because you're debilitated. You're sick. You're anemic, my dear, regenerate converted, but not yet reconverted and re-reconverted and constantly sanctified, friend, until the gospel is the power of God in your life and you're not ashamed of it. For who is this gospel intended? Now listen to me, you Calvinists, you frozen chosen, you people who believe in limited atonement. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto every man that believeth. Not your job, not my God to go, job to go around sticking a label on a person saying, well, you're a Mormon, you're obviously reprobate. I won't bother to confront you with the gospel. That's God's business. Our business is to confront everybody with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, we know he's not going to believe unless the, unless the Father drags him to come to Christ, for that's what the Greek says. King James tones it down and says, No man can come unto me unless the Father draws him. It's nice and effeminate, draws him. The Greek says, drags him. We don't have to go into that, even though it's true. If the man will believe, and he'll only believe if he's elect, and if he's elect, God the Father will give him the gift of faith, and then he'll come to Christ. But everybody and anybody who will believe in Jesus, will be saved and therefore we can go up to anyone in the street not tell him this Arminian lie Christ died for you with the intention of saving you that's not true but we can tell him and should tell him and must tell him that if you will believe in Jesus if you will believe in Jesus whoever you are you shall be saved everybody you don't believe that my friend you're a hyper-Calvinist I'm not a real Calvinist. If you don't believe me, go look it up in Calvin's Institutes. Because that's what he says. Unless you believe Calvin was an Arminian. <laughs> it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Now we're talking about Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Now we've got to go back to the first Adam. The first Adam of which Jesus is the fulfillment as second Adam. We've got to understand this thing. Who is this Jesus? What is this gospel that believes in Jesus? What is it that Jesus is supposed to do for us, for those of us who believe in him? Now Romans chapter 2 and verse 12 is telling us very distinctly well, let me just interject a parenthesis. But a parenthesis that's found elsewhere in the Bible, not like the dispensationalistic parenthesis in Daniel 9 that isn't found elsewhere. Let me just interject this parenthesis between Romans 1 and 2 and get the parenthesis from Romans 5. As by one man, the first Adam, sin entered into the world, 
and passed unto all men so that all have sinned, so too by one man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, has justification come for all men, for all men who are in him, as it came over all men who were in Adam. And don't make that second all men that were justified too narrow, my Calvinist friend. Don't make it too narrow. I think the very least we must say quantitatively and numerically at this point is that more people are going to end up in heaven through the justification of the second Adam than people are going to end up in hell ultimately because of the mess made by the first Adam. Then we can see if it is so, and I believe it is, that God comes out on top. But if you believe that more people are going to go to hell on account of what the first Adam did, then we'll wind up in heaven ultimately on account of the second Adam did, then it raises some questions, I believe, as to the wisdom of God and the power of God to save the world which he so loved that he gave his Son for the redemption, not of a majority in the world, still less of a minority in the world, but of the world as such as an organic we see then from Romans 9 that there are two Adams, the first and the second. Now going back to the first Adam so that we can understand what the second Adam did. Romans 2 verse 12, For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. The meaning of this verse, of course, is that the Jews and the Christians who have had the Ten Commandments clearly demonstrated before them, if they have sinned against the law, knowing what the law is, having been shown it visibly, they shall be lost without, uh, with the law. Even though they've had the law, they'll be lost because they won't keep it. But then notice the following verse. As many, uh, uh, rather the previous clause, as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. As many heathen who have not had the law of God held up to them visibly, externally, they shall perish without the law. Some people say, oh, God's going to save them. They don't know any better. They haven't heard the Ten Commandments. How can God possibly send them to hell? The Bible says they shall perish without the law, even as those Jews and members of Christian churches will perish and go to hell, even though they've known the law. It seems at this point, does it not? that there is perhaps an injustice with God, particularly in sending the heathen to hell, that the Bible says haven't had the law. And so Paul goes on to elaborate and to vindicate the justice of God, and he says in verse 14, For when the Gentiles, that is the heathen, which have not the law, they've not received the Ten Commandments externally, they've not seen a Bible, when these heathen, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, 
and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Notice one simultaneous judgment of all men, both the elect and the reprobate, both the members of the church and the Jews on the one hand, and the heathen on the other, in the day when God shall judge men according to my gospel. Now the point is that the heathen are not innocent. The point is that even though the heathen have never seen a Bible, have not heard the Ten Commandments come out of the mouth of a missionary, and if those heathen have been listening to a dispensationalistic missionary, they won't have heard the Ten Commandments come out of his mouth either, then they are still guilty. Now, on what basis are they guilty? They're guilty, says Paul, because the works of the law are written on the hearts of the heathen. Not only that, but their consciences excuse or accuse one another. Now, where does the law of God come from, which Paul says here is written on the heart of the unbeliever and indeed in his conscience, even if he doesn't know the law in the sense that he hasn't seen the Bible or heard the law that profits the gospel from the mission? Well, it's very simple. The Bible declares that God made Adam the first father of all men, even Jews, Christians, or whatever, that God made Adam in his image in perfect righteousness, that the principles of righteousness thus, the Ten Commandments, were written on the heart of Adam before the fall. And even though Adam has now fallen into sin and all of his descendants, and even though the consciousness of those principles of morality, the Ten Commandments, written on the heart of the ancestor of all men before the fall, have now become somewhat vague, they are sufficiently written on the heart of every man, of every heathen, so as to render all men without excuse, so that the works of the law are clearly written, clearly enough written, on their hearts, so that their consciences bother them when they sin against that light because there still remains something of the image of God, something of the righteousness, the law-keepingness, the necessity to keep the law on the heart of the heathen. I don't like giving illustrations in sermons because I don't have enough time and I'm interested in what the Bible says rather than what I see happening with people. But I will say this. There are many cases known to missionaries of people who have practiced abominable practices. And there's some pretty abominable practices amongst the heathen. One of them, and I'll just mention it, the tribe way up in the northern part of South Africa, which had the practice of uh, casting lots on a bunch of girls when they reached the age of puberty, and the girl on whom the lot fell was required to have sexual intercourse in public with her own father in front of the tribe, after which she would be taken and thrown to the village crocodile. Now, the white authorities, when they moved into that area, put an end to this pernicious practice. Many such cases, people who have done missionary work in the raw will attest 
to these abominable kind of conditions. Today, great numbers of that same tribe profess faith in the Lord, and they have turned from that wicked practice and other wicked practices. And when these men give their testimony, they will tell you time after time after time, I knew that this thing was vicious, I knew that it was wicked, but I was chicken, I didn't have the guts to stand up and differ because I feared the pressure of public opinion, so I kept quiet. And you know, you don't have to go to Africa to realize this, you just have to look at what it's like in the business world in Atlanta, Georgia, right? How many of us are chicken? And we keep quiet when we should speak up. And we know afterwards we should have spoken up. And then we hear a sermon and that rouses us up. And then we get right with the Lord and we stand up and we testify. And we said, I always knew that thing was wrong. But I didn't have the courage to stand up and protest because of public opinion. Well now, the law of God is written on the hearts of all men even on the hearts of people who have not heard the gospel, who have not received the Ten Commandments, who have not met a missionary, and it's written on the hearts of all men, because all men descend from Adam, on whose heart the law of God was written in the first place. I'm building up in this sermon to demolish some of the idiotic statements that are made by antinomians people who say Christians are not required to keep the Ten Commandments after conversion, and that we can understand what Paul, and particularly Paul in Romans, is really saying, because it's to certain key verses of the book of Romans that these people appeal with their pernicious, damnable, hellish doctrine, undermining of all morality and decency, even in the eyes of a worldling, that a Christian after he's born again, just has to trust Jesus and shouldn't even try to keep the Ten Commandments. I say that's a doctrine of the devil. Now then, verse 26 of Romans 2. If the uncircumcision, that is, the person who is outside of the covenant, if he keep the righteousness of the law, and the possibility is there, you see, that at least formally he can do so, although not do so perfectly and merit everlasting life. But if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, and that is God's requirement that the law be fulfilled, Shall that uncircumcision not judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision dost transgress the law? Now listen, you people who don't yet see infant baptism, listen very, very carefully to this verse. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew. Let me give you that again. He is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. Now, I am a Jew, folks. 
and you are Jews. But those who say that they are Jews, but who deny Jesus, are not Jews, but a synagogue of Satan. Revelation 2, verse 9, and 3, verse 9. We who believe in Jesus are heirs to the same promises of the Old Testament Israelites. We keep the same Ten Commandments. We are the heirs of the same national spiritual, material promises, and these promises are for us and our children just as much as they were for Old Testament Israel and their little children too. Now let's move on. Verse uh, chapter 3. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse 23. The argument here is that we can't keep the law. We can none of us keep the Ten Commandments sufficiently to be perfect and to be justified by keeping the Ten Commandments, yet God does require absolute obedience to the Ten Commandments for anybody to go to heaven. And the gospel and the good news is revealed here. Not that Jesus no longer requires us to keep the Ten Commandments, but that He kept the Ten Commandments in our place as our substitute, met the requirements as the second Adam which God put to the first Adam, was a perfect man, received the reward that everyone will receive who keeps the commandments, and that reward is everlasting life. And that Jesus, because He kept the Ten Commandments, donates everlasting life which God the Father gives to him as the second Adam, as the Son of Man, not as the Son of God, and he gives, donates to us what he earned in our place. And then we say, thank you very much, Lord. We've got everlasting life. We can never be lost. We'll fold our arms and now we will break the Ten Commandments because you have paid the price. You have met the conditions and that's all there is to it. Oh no, oh no, says Paul. If the Spirit which rose, raised up Jesus from the dead really does live in you Christians, then you are more and more going to behave in exactly the same way that Jesus behaved as the Son of Man. You're going to be perfect as much as you can be, even as he was perfect as much as he could be, as the one, unlike us, born without sin. And so Paul says in verse 31 of chapter 3, Do we then make void the law through faith? Is the law, the Ten Commandments, and our obligation to keep it cancelled just because we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ who kept it for us? Is there no Ten Commandments left for the born-again Christian to keep. God forbid, he says, God forbid that we should abolish the law. God forbid that we Christians should be outlaws. Yes, we establish the law. We hold forth the law as the standard for the born-again Christian to live by even more strongly than we hold it forward before the unbeliever to show him that he cannot keep it to drive him to Christ who kept it. 
What do we hear today in so many so-called evangelical pulpits? We hear that the Ten Commandments have some use in slaying the unbeliever and bringing him into the cross, but once it's done that, no further use for the law. What does Paul say? Paul says, greater is the use of the law in your life after you've been saved to try to keep it out of gratitude to God. Then was the use of the law in your life before you were saved as a schoolmaster to lead you to Christ? All the turning upside down of the gospel by modern so-called evangelicals, how painful, how painful it is. All right, let us proceed to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. What shall we say then, says Paul, who's been preaching the gospel throughout this book and he doesn't want anyone to misunderstand it. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Now here we learn what law Paul is speaking about. The law that is established by the death of Christ. Not the ceremonial law, but the Ten Commandments, and specifically the last commandment, the Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet, which of course embraces all of the previous nine of the Ten Commandments. I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, Avarice, desire, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Now this law, this Ten Commandments, Paul is now about to argue, is not abolished at the cross of Christ. In verse 12, he says, of Romans 7, Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and just and good. The Ten Commandments, he says, is holy. That means it makes you holy. It's the standard of holiness and sanctification. Second, the law is just. It shows you what God considers to be the right thing for you Christians to do, says Paul to the Christians to whom he's writing this epistle and to us in them. And finally, the law is good. So often we say, well, you know, uh, I really don't know that it's necessary for me to, uh, to observe the Sabbath. That's not good. Times have changed. The Bible says that it is good to observe the Sabbath. Times may have changed, but people are getting worn out and getting nervous wrecks and becoming neurotic people because they're breaking the law of God. Again, I, I'll just tell you this. Uh, I was once uh, working in a church on the border of the Congo, and uh, a very unsavory story, but just to show you what happens when people get super evangelical and deny the law of God. The uh, woman in the church where I was working, uh, who literally drove carloads of people, carloads of people, to church on Sunday night to get them, quote, saved, unsaved, 
uh, to get them, uh, quote, saved, unquote, and let me say, to get them, quote, saved, unquote, supposedly uh, saved, but actually unsaved, this woman ran off with uh, one of the elders. And I arrived on the scene just after uh, this great, fiery, in more ways than one, evangelical woman had run off with the elder. And I had to clean up the mess. And I spoke to the elder's wife, whose husband had been stolen by this woman who had driven carloads of people to the church which I was then pastoring, a reformed church, let me say, Calvinistic church, uh, to get saved. And she said, it's terrible, doctor. She says, I came home one day and I opened the door and I, I went into the bedroom and there they were. And I just fled and I cried. But the next day I collected myself together and I saw this woman on the street and I went up to her and I said, Oh, Joey, for, for Christ's sake, give me back my husband. Joey looked down at this pathetic Betty at her feet and says, Well, I, I love you, Betty, and I sure would like to give you back your husband. But you see, the Holy Spirit has given me this deep, wonderful love for your husband. A love that you were never able to give him. And much though I, I, I feel sorry for you, for me to yield him to you would be to go against the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And I said, and what did you say to her? She says nothing. What should I have said? I said, you should have said, my Bible written by the Holy Spirit says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, it's no joy for me to tell you that, but we, we, we meet these lunatic evangelicals every day. And if it's not adultery, it's lying. And if it's not lying, it's Sabbath desecration. And if it's not that, it's something else. It's just horrible. But Paul says to the born-again believers in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and just and good. Verse 14, We know that the law is spiritual. How often they say, well, the law was all right for a bunch of Jews that lived 1400 B.C., but times have changed. Do you know there's a group in North America that calls itself Calvinist that argues that way? Do you know that? The law is not a culturally conditioned remnant of a primitive set of rules which the Jews developed for themselves nor which the Holy Ghost developed just for the Jews then nor for their successes only up to Christ. The law, my friend, is spiritual. The law is full of the Holy Ghost. If you're a spiritual person, you keep the law. If you break the law or don't try to keep the law, you're a carnal Christian. Paul says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Verse 21. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me, but I delight in the law of God after the inward man. 
Now Paul says, I'm not perfect as a Christian. I, I, I want to do the right thing. Uh, and so often I do the evil thing and I don't have the power in myself to do the right thing perfectly. But I'll tell you this, says Paul, when I look inside my regenerate heart and when I see that the Lord Jesus is there in spite of all the sin that's left, in spite of my imperfection, I delight. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Oh, how I love the law of God, says Paul, even though I break it, alas. I delight in it. It is my meditation night and day. I love that law. Do you love the law? Do you delight in the law of God? Do you desire to pattern your whole life after the Ten Commandments? Do you desire to be known as a Sabbath-keeping Christian, as a truthful Christian, who levels and tells the truth at all times, as one who, who doesn't have ambitions to deprive others of what they have in order to get things that you would like rather than earn them in the sweat of your brow? Then Paul goes on to say, in verse 25 so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God many would say today no no if you're led by the Holy Spirit you don't serve the law of God at all Paul says yes I do as a born again Christian when I'm not sinning I do serve the law of God and then he goes on to Romans chapter 8 and he says there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin. Now there are those who twist this text to make it read more or less as follows. There will be no judgment whatsoever to people who claim to be saved, to people who, if they want to, now and then, uh, follow what they think is the leading of the Holy Spirit, which has got nothing to do with the law of God. But I want for us to see that that's not what that verse says, and it's not what it means. There is a judgment for every Christian. Every one of us, born-again, sanctified Christians, will appear before the great white throne judgment just as the unregenerate will. And we will all be judged, every one of us. But we won't be condemned. We, God's elect, will not be sent to hell. Why? Because we don't sin? No. But because Jesus died in our place. No condemnation for us. Although there will be a judgment. But notice that those of us who love Jesus won't just say that we love Jesus and then fold our hands and do nothing else but go on saying that we love Jesus. If we really do love Jesus and realize that it's only his death, his merit in keeping the law for us and in our place, we are going to receive the nature of Jesus Christ by the inworking of the Holy Spirit 
And we are not only going to desire to keep the law as Jesus did, but we are going to be given the ability more and more to manifest a greater degree of law-keeping after we are saved. And that's what it says. Those for whom there are no condemnation are those who are in Christ Jesus, and those who are in Christ Jesus, verse 1, are those who keep on walking after the Spirit. What Spirit? The Spirit that was in Jesus who kept the law. What Spirit? The Spirit that carved the law of God onto the tablets of stone and gave them to Moses in the first place. Verse 2, the law of the Spirit. You see that? Not just the Spirit of life hath made me free, but the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of the Ten Commandments. No, no, hath made me free from the law of sin and death. How dare we twist freedom from the law of sin and death to read freedom from the law of the Ten Commandments when the very same verse has just said that we are now keeping the law of the Spirit, which is the Ten Commandments, which he wrote on the stones and which he writes on our own hearts. Verse 3. For what the law could not do, not because it wasn't good, but because it was weak through the flesh, through our inability to keep it, not through its own perfection, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Now get this. So that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Notice it doesn't say fulfilled for us. That too, of course. But also fulfilled in us. In our lives. In the lives of us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For whom did Christ die? He died for those who desire to keep the law. Do they keep the law after their profession of conversion in their own strength? No. They keep it because the Spirit of Christ works that desire in their heart. But they've no right to claim to be saved if their lives do not manifest a desire and a God-given ability to walk after that law of the Spirit. Verse 5, those who are according to the Spirit mind the things of the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit, the Christians, are mindful of the things of the Spirit. Now, what are the things of the Spirit? The things of the Spirit are the things which the Spirit gave us. The things that the Spirit wrote on the tablets of stone on Mount Sinai. The things that the Spirit writes on our own hearts after our regeneration. Beloved, if you are not interested in the things of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit, every one of which is related to the manifestation of the keeping of the Ten Commandments, if you're not interested in the things of the Spirit, I put it to you, you're not being led by the Spirit at all. 
even if you claim to be. Like that, like that woman Joey I was telling you about, the great evangelical, taking carloads of people to church and then rapturing one of the church's elders and was never seen again. Verse 11. Verse 11. But if the Spirit, now let's get this, if the Spirit, there's another conditional if, only pseudo-Calvinists say there are no ifs in the Bible. There are plenty of ifs in the Bible. But these ifs are not Arminian ifs, they're Calvinistic ifs. If the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead does dwell in you, then he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. When? Well, when he raises us from the dead. Oh no. In this life, one second after we're regenerate and for the rest of our life until we die, because you see it says in verse 13, if ye live after the flesh in this life, ye shall die. If you say you're a born-again Christian and you're saved, but you continue to live after the flesh, you shall die in your sins, says God. But if you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. What is a Christian required to do? Mortify the deeds of the body. Put to death, theft, adultery, murder, Sabbath desecration. Ten commandments, right? That's the works of the flesh. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And as many as are sons of God, as opposed to those who just claim to be, they are led by the Spirit. And they do mortify the works of the flesh. And they do desire earnestly to live after all of the Ten Commandments, however imperfect they may be in not absolutely succeeding before they die. Verse 15. Now we're going to go into prayer on this. You Christians have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And now in this prayerful mood, Paul just as we saw at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, he measured the greatness and the scope and the length and the breadth and the depth and the height of the love of God, world without end through all the ages. Amen. Now, if his heart soars up as he cons considers in prayer, as he considers the universe encircling scope, of the sanctifying work of the Spirit and of the system of built-in checks and balances throughout God's universe upheld by the law of God in the power of the Spirit. And he says in verse 19, For the earnest expectation of the creature, waiter, stands on tiptoe, apprehends, longs for the manifestation of the sons of God. He says the whole of creation 
the galaxies, the stars, the sun, the moon, the planets, the atoms, they're all onlookers looking forward to see which human beings will be manifested, will be revealed to be the sons of God, the children of God, Christians. And then he says, the creature, that is, verse 20, the whole creation, was subjected to vanity, to nothingness. Not willingly, not because creation asked God to be made subject to the curse, but by reason of God who has subjected the creation in hope. In what hope? In hope of its redemption. For its own sake? No. For the sake of the manifestation of the sons of God, the sons of the second Adam. The sons of those redeemed from the fallen human race as a result of which this universe was cursed. Because, verse 21, the creation itself shall be delivered, perhaps. No. Shall definitely be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. You know that if evangelicals believe that God's going to destroy this earth? Or should I rather say they believe he's going to annihilate this earth? But the Bible doesn't teach that God's going to annihilate this earth. The Bible teaches God's going to cleanse the bad things up of the earth by fire. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L, 3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship, 
in which they absurdly exercise themselves, would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.